Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think after 13 years of this lot, you do have to ask, what have the Conservatives ever done for Britain? It's dishonest to claim that it's a carbon effective project, although HS2 are sticking to this public relations. 20 miles an hour, I've seen pit ponies trot at 20 miles an hour. The Rishi slight tweak of the net zero timetable does seem to have paid a few potential political dividends. One. We have left off. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Rishi Sunak's doubling down on his retreat from net zero as the Tory faithful gather in Manchester this weekend for their party conference. The Prime Minister's throwing the pro-growth wing of his party some red, or should that be true blue meat? Having rode back some of the government's net zero policies last week, pushing back the ban on new petrol and diesel cars five years to 2035, Sunak's now given the green light to the development of the UK's largest known untapped oil and gas field. That's Rose Bank, 80 miles west of Shetland. Labour are opposed but say they won't reverse this decision, mindful that several big trade unions back the jobs and industry a new oil and gas field represents. The Green Party, of course, say Sunak's move is morally repugnant. In other news, the Tories are on the verge of scrapping the Birmingham-Manchester leg of the controversial HS2 high-speed super train. Awkward as they all head to Manchester. (laughs) Swallow Braveman's talking tough again on immigration and Planet Normal favourite and former guest... The American novelist Lionel Shriver has announced she's leaving the UK because she says we've lost the art of free speech. But first things first, Alison, you've been in Wales, the land of your fathers, visiting your lovely mum. And also, I hear, chatting up a few local taxi drivers. (laughs) I think Dean the taxi was chatting up me, Halligan. Listeners will be really shocked. All I have to do is just cross the River Severn and it all starts, the the accent starts kicking back in. Does that happen to you when you go home? Does that happen in Ireland? No, because I'm such a plastic paddy in their eyes that if I even <laughs> attempted an Irish accent, I'd just be laughed at. <laughs> It'd be a bit like some American tourists sort of going around Leicester Square in central London, beef feeder <laughs> suit saying, my, my 15th cousin lived in Rochdale. Do you know Mr. Brown? <laughs> I get very Welsh when I go home. And yeah, I got jumped in a taxi at Carmarthen Station, Carmarthen, my beautiful birthplace. Anyone who hasn't been to West Wales, one of the one of the nicest parts of the country when it stops raining. And I got, so obviously I got in the back of Dino's taxi and got the full experience of the Mark Druid Drakeford's 20 mile an hour speed limit. As if Wales wasn't struggling enough, he's <laughs> now decided to make it ground to a I can highly recommend to Planet Normal listeners. There is a a video on TikTok 
showing the driver of a mobility scooter gleefully overtaking a long line of Welsh cars. Now, the verdict of everyone I spoke to, Liam, was that it was crackers. You've actually got lorries struggling to get up a hill at that incredibly low speed. And and the Welsh government massively green virtue signalling. So the Welsh government is claiming that the blanket 20 mile an hour speed limit will result in 40% fewer road collisions, but not, I, I suggest, having talked to Dean, with all the confused people constantly looking down at the speedometer to check whether they're going over. <laughs> so everyone's going to be, it's like, it's like fairground bumper cars. 20 miles an hour, I've seen pit ponies trot at 20 miles an hour. Crikey, it's not very fast, is it? You know, there's a serious point here. There is a petition calling on the Welsh government to rescind the disastrous 20 mile an hour law. And that's already gathered amazing 433,000 signatures. And that's well over 25% of the Welsh vote at the 2019 general election. But this is, the, you, you're going to love this, Liv. So it's marvellous, isn't it? Talk. I, I just think all the deans, I think we should just have a couple of weeks of all the Dean, the taxis running the United Kingdom. Let's broaden this out, okay? because we need to pay tribute here on Planet Normal to the Deans, the Rogers, the Allens, the Collins, the Bryans, the Keiths, the Nigels. Yeah. And all these people from normal backgrounds that make Britain run. Hang on a minute. We've got to have the Janets, the Sues, the Sarahs. We don't want to with the James. We don't want to miss them out. The Wendy's. J.M. Barry's famous name that he invented. Yes, the Wendy's, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Are there, are there, if there's a Wendy out there, let us know. Cause there's loads of Wendy's. Well, you know what I was really object to with this, all this horrible lefties uh, being rude about creating this hate figure called Karen. And in my Welsh primary school, half of the girls were called Karen Roberts. And it was, I grew up with Karens and Sharons. And it's such a snobby thing, Liam. It's disgusting, isn't it? They're not going to call someone the Charlottes or the Olivia's because that would be their social class. But it's fair enough to piss on us. Nothing wrong with a Karen. I, I knew a fair few Karens at school. And while we're on the subject of Wendy, can I just say that Wendy Craig, of course, Mm. Possibly the most famous Wendy outside of Peter Pan. She's still around. Fabulous. The the Butterflies actress, of course. Uh, But guess what? You don't hear this often. She wasn't actually Wendy. She was a Gwendolyn. Was she? Who became a Wendy. There you go. And Gwendolyn Craig, her name was. Goodness me, the stuff you know. You're, you, I amaze myself. I amaze myself. You're more in, untapped than Capital the Capital of Chad. I'm your oil. man. Five <laughs> European capitals that begin with V. I'm your man. <laughs> Don't start this. Leighton Orient's most capped international. <laughs> I'm your man. Shut up. John Chidozzi or Peter Shilton because he did once play for Leighton Orient. <sighs> We're going to have a Planet Normal pub quiz because you'd, you'd win and then you'd be thrilled with yourself. And I'd set the questions and then answer. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, just to finish the Dean, Dean the Taxi story. So Dean pointed out something which I don't think Drakeford and his mad minions had ever thought about. So Dean said, round here, people like to drive under the speed limit. So now the limit is 20 miles an hour. They're all driving at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> So he said that it's absolutely impossible to get anywhere. I think it is interesting because Wales's Labour run has been famously Labour run dreadful. Even the England NHS looks a bit better than the Welsh NHS. It's a kingdom of socialist misrule. And I do think that it's an interesting test bed for these very low speed limits, which probably will be coming 
to the rest of the UK when Labour gets into power. But it did show you how mad they are. And by the way, I got into a bit of a spat on Twitter or X as we... Some like must... you. No, that's not like me. But the world at one... <laughs> Sarah... No need to get into an argument on Twitter. Sarah Montague. She's not a Karen, is she? Sarah Montague on the BBC Radio 4 today. They were talking about this new licence for the North Sea, which, of course, is absolutely essential. That the we... aptly named Rose Bank. Plenty of roses out there. 80 miles west of Shetland. Yes, Rosebank. Must get out there with my clippers and my gardening gloves. <laughs> but of course, the Radio 4 take on it is, oh, absolutely dreadful. It's going to be causing all these carbon emissions drilling down. And I said, I, drawing on my extensive Velma knowledge and knowledge from marvellous Planet Normal listeners, and this all oh, very well, Halligan, we import from Norway. We pay Norway 14 billion quid a year for their gas. That's 70% of our gas imports goes to Norway, who are, guess what, drilling in the North Sea. So we're literally, we've got these Greens and these people on the sort of Green Zealots and the BBC and all those very, you know, bien pensant, self-congratulatory people saying, oh, how dreadful that we're going to be drilling. No, we are taking gas and oil from other people who are drilling and they are making the carbon emissions for us. But anyway, just to say, it does seem interesting, doesn't it, that the sort of the Rishi, the thing you alluded to, Liam, the sort of the Rishi slight tweak of the net zero timetable does seem to have paid a few potential political dividends because his numbers have stopped tumbling catastrophically. One poll put Labour having grabbed back five percentage points from Labour. So who knew that if a Conservative government did something faintly right of centre, the people might approve of it? I think this is more than a tweak to the net zero policy. I think until very recently, it it was so difficult to even talk about the timetable for net zero, so difficult to even talk about any difficulties that net zero raised for ordinary working people upon whose shoulders the costs seem to fall. That's changed because of the war in Ukraine. We, we can now talk about net zero and energy security and the cost of living crisis in the same sentence without being accused of being a denier or being chucked off various social media platforms. I think I'm all for a move away from fossil fuels, but even the government's own climate change commission, which is like the in-house watchdog to make sure ministers are on the straight and narrow when it comes to net zero. So even the climate change commission says that by the mid 2030s, we will still be using oil and gas for 50% of our energy down from 70% now. I personally think that is a massive over estimates. I think oil and gas won't go away nearly as quickly as that. The Climate Change Commission relies on very, very uh, rosy assumptions of how quickly renewables can come to the fore. And even the Climate Change Commission says when we are at net zero at 2050, we'll still be using oil and gas for around 25% of our energy. So it surely makes sense to use our own oil and gas because that gives you the lowest emissions per barrel. How about if we use LNG, liquefied natural gas from America? Well, you got to drill the gas in Dakota or wherever it is. Then you've got to get the gas to the coast. Then you've got to liquefy the gas, a very energy intensive process. Then you've got to pump the gas onto oil tankers that are fueled by diesel that have then got to cross the Atlantic, <laughs> 3,200 miles. Then you've got to regasify the liquid, which again is very energy intensive. And then hopefully when you've used a massive amount of carbon, you can then use the gas in the UK and other European 
markets. You can't build a gas pipeline underneath the Atlantic, for instance. So why are we using LNG? America's become the biggest LNG exporter in the world since this war in Ukraine. We're using massive LNG, massive carbon footprint associated with it, rather than using our own gas. So I do think that the net zero supporters need to come up with a better argument than we should just stop this North Sea drilling. Because for now, given that we are going to be using oil and gas, even the Climate Change Commission acknowledges that, it's much better to use our own oil and gas. It's less carbon intensive and it brings jobs and prosperity to the UK. Sunak's really put the Labour Party in a corner here because the Mm. GMB, the third biggest union, Gary Smith, very astute guy, he's totally agreed with Sunak and Rosebank because there are 2,000 well-paid jobs here that his union members want. And as for the SNP, until recently, the SNP was saying North Sea Oil was Scotland's oil, the key to their financial independence and the broader case for an independence referendum. Yet now you've got the leadership of the SNP Could it be because they're in coalition with the Greens in Parliament because they didn't get a parliamentary majority in their own right? Could be. But now suddenly they want to make Aberdeen the net zero capital of the world rather than retaining it as the oil and gas capital of Europe, providing tens of thousands of really good jobs there up on the east coast of Scotland. So I think this is quite astute politically and strategically for Sunak. Finally, 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 Alison, he's actually doing some politics. Yes, he is. Well, I think it's I think it's too little, too late. And a lot of the commentators get quite excited about it. I have to say that although the numbers have stabilised, we had a poll in the Telegraph yesterday, the latest Savanta survey, predicting a really epic defeat. Um, Labour could win a 100-seat majority at the 2024 general election. The Tories could lose 200 and 20 seats. So that puts Labour 46% to Conservatives 29%. We have to say, Liam, this isn't because Labour deserves that kind of majority. It's literally, I think, because we've got the Conservative Party conference coming up starting at the weekend. And I think after 13 years of this lot, you do have to ask, what have the Conservatives ever done for Britain? But before we move on, can I, I just say I felt very low earlier in the week. That's because you weren't allowed around to buoy me up as you usually do. But there were two stories, actually. One was the Lionel Shriver story, which you alluded to, which is <clears throat> our friend and fantastic novelist and essayist Lionel Shriver, who's announced that after many years living here, first in Northern Ireland, actually, and then in London, that she's leaving the UK. And I sent her an email saying how personally sad I felt. And I I think those of us, and I include all Planet Normal listeners and you and I and our wonderful guests, I felt that through all the years we've lived, we've been in the same trench. Lionel and us, we've been in the same trench. And she is a valiant warrior for our cause, one of the few people in our trade to, to constantly attack lockdown and to push back against these various mad ideologies which are infesting our institutions. And Lionel wrote back a very sweet note saying how much she regarded us and so on. And she said, at least as well as I do, Alison, that the country is in the shit house." And I think that is right, Liam. I think this, this is a dreadful time for this country. We'll talk about HS2 later on and other things. But what's that WBA's quote? The best lack all conviction. The worst are full of passionate intensity. And, and we try to be full of conviction. And the other small story that really uh, did upset me was Planet Normal listeners will remember the wonderful guest we had, Alka Sagel-Cuspert. Alka is a wonderful teacher and educator, and she founded 
Don't Divide Us, which is an organization which basically fights back against critical race theory being taught in British primary schools. And Alka was invited to be a speaker at this Rethinking Education conference. In fact, ironically, taking part in a panel called What is Indoctrination in Education and How to Avoid It. But then at the weekend, Alka herself was cancelled from speaking on this Rethinking Education platform. Because guess what, Liam? Seven of the other participants said that they didn't feel safe appearing with Alka Sagel Cusper. Now, Alka, who I did an event with... She's uh, hardly Mike Tyson, is she? I mean, she's she's a a beautiful and diminutive, very erudite woman, five foot two... (laughs) She's smaller than me and I'm five foot four. She's, she'd be lucky if she's tipping over five foot. So these dreadful people, I really cannot express how presumably teachers and educators themselves saying they don't feel safe appearing with this marvelous woman who, guess what, happens to have some views that don't align with theirs, who's trying to protect children from being told that white people are horrible. Anyway, I did feel some, just every so often in our game, you feel that the odds are somewhat stacked against us. But we struggle on, Liam. Let, should we talk about the Suella speech? You want to say what she's been saying in Washington? This is all part of the run-up to Tory party conference. We'll be interviewing guests from Manchester for next week's Planet Normal, won't we? And this is part of the ongoing battle, I'd say, for the succession for the post-Sunak Tory crown, probably in opposition, between Sweller Braverman on the one hand and probably Kemi Badenoch on the other. And as Kemi has been knuckling down as business secretary, trade secretary. She's had tremendous success bringing Britain into something called the CPTPP, which of course, you know (laughs) all about that, the Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, which is a sort of grouping of countries around the Pacific Rim. Britain's become part of that. Britain's inching, but steadily inching towards a trade deal with with India. So that's what Kemi Badenoch's doing. She's been a bit more consensual recently, a bit more government loyalist. Swella Braveman is pushing the envelope as far as she can on immigration. She knows there's a lot of public concern about immigration. She knows the numbers don't look good for Sunak. She knows there's big concern about the hotel bill for people who've recently landed in the UK illegally. And she wants to make some hay with that in America, where, of course, there'll be lots of people eyeing up who's going to be the next Conservative leader. So it is quite a punchy move from her ahead of Manchester and also Manchester, Rishi Sunak, as well as the Home Secretary on manoeuvres, if you like, is also going to have a former Prime Minister on manoeuvres. Liz Truss is holding a seminar of her Growth Commission. She's got Jacob Rees-Mogg is supporting her, Priti Patel is supporting her. So two former big beasts from the Cabinet there. Also Reynold Jar Wardner, who's an up-and-coming young backbencher who was in Truss's government. He is really being groomed, I think, as the kind of trussite leadership candidate for contests to come. So there's a lot of politics going on in the Tory party. And this is probably going to be the last Tory leadership. And this is probably going to be, Alison, if you think about it, the last Tory conference before the next general election. Yes, it will. I was thinking into your frame of Badenoch and Suella, I would 
put Pretty Patel as well. And how interesting, isn't it, that Suella Braverman makes an extremely bold speech, basically saying that multiculturalism has failed, and yet it a strong possibility that the three conservatives fighting out for the leadership from the smoldering ashes of the conservative defeat in 2024 would be three women from ethnic minority backgrounds. I don't agree with the sort of Suella line that all multiculturalism has failed in the UK, because quite clearly, if we look at the conservative front bench, we've got a Hindu prime minister, a Buddhist home secretary, James Cleverly from a partly West African background. So in many ways, we are one of the best integrated countries in the world. And you offer, as you often say, Liam, we score very highly. There's no developed country in the world where you'd have that many people from ethnic minority backgrounds on the front bench. And they're not just on the front bench, right? They've got the great offices of state. And and what's incredible, Alison, is that when Rishi Sunak became prime minister, people remarked on his age, people remarked on he's clever, people remarked on the fact that he's wealthy. Yeah. But almost no one said, oh, we've got our first ethnic minority prime minister. We just didn't talk about it, which is astonishing. And when I think back to... The Britain I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s, and the Britain my father came to from the west of Ireland in the 40s and 50s, how far we have come. And of course, there's still nasty racism out there. And yet still, the usual suspects, as Orwell warned us, they always would, constantly knock this country, calling it institutionally racist and so on. I just think it's complete nonsense. And yes, I'm a white man, but I'm a white man of very much Irish origin, who grew up at a time when Britain and Ireland were absolutely at loggerheads over so many issues. And there was a lot of nastiness on the streets towards Irish people. Take it from me. Take it from me. And yet we have come so far. Lots of work still to do, but no other country in the world, no other wealthy, developed country would have so many people from ethnic minority and clearly immigrant backgrounds not just on at the front of government, but at the very apex of power. I think that's true. But I think that the part of Suella Braverman's speech, which was absolutely spot on, you know, we have had this immigration, Liam, is absolutely out of control. So I think what she is trying to articulate is that this uncontrolled and illegal migration does pose an existential challenge to the West. And failing to control the nation's borders is going to lead to a breakdown in the consent of the people. And I think the the nub of the argument is very, very interesting because they're talking about this United Nations Refugees Convention, which sprang out of the, obviously, the, the dreadful events of the Second World War. And that was around 1951, when I think they were talking about potentially 2 million people being eligible for refugee status. Now, Nick Timothy, our own Nick Timothy at The Telegraph, has said that it is now about 780 million people will be eligible to claim asylum under the sort of existing criteria. And this is, of course, without radical reform 
of those global refugee rules. And I think the point that Suella Braverman was making was that, that the Refugee Convention was about real fear of persecution, genuine persecution, not simple discrimination. So we can't possibly take all the women around the world who are living in a country that isn't incredibly hospitable to women, because that would be all the women in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Bangladesh. So we can't have all of them coming here. And equally with gay people, lots of African countries, in lots of African countries, homosexuality is illegal. Well, as Suella Braverman said, that's very unfortunate and we're very sympathetic, but we cannot have every LGBT person on the planet claiming refugee status in Europe because Europe will collapse. I think what she's talking about, and as you're right, she's very definitely putting her flag into this kind of subject, but the tests for how refugees are defined have got to change from well-founded fear of persecution to to something else because just simple discrimination and economic necessity, um, the, the numbers are crazy, Liam. So I think what we're going to see now is we're going to see this ground being thrashed out about do we leave the ECHR, do we demand changes to the Refugee Convention. And certainly that is now a really live issue across Europe, where the great fear of the centre parties now is we're seeing the far right, aren't we? In Germany, potentially in Spain, in Italy, although they, I don't think Georgia Maloney is far right. I mean, I think Georgia Maloney and I are on the same page. We're both Karens. What do you think, Liam? I think you're right. Suela is sticking her flag in the ground. She was, of course, part of the Tory leadership contest last time round. She did pretty well. Kemi did better. These two are clearly vying for the post-Sunak crown. I do think it will be very interesting in Manchester to read the political mood and look at the plotting and scheming. Clearly, Sunak is having a hard time in the opinion polls, both Tories against Labour and also how he stacks up personally, not just against Starmer, but against his own rivals within his own cabinet. But what I would say in the run-up to conference, at least he started actually doing things. He's been in Prime Minister now for a year. Up until very recently, he was just responding to events, trying not to offend, triangulating, but he can't afford to triangulate. He can't afford to pretend he's doing steady as she goes. He's got to take risks. He's got to roll the dice. He's got to start speculating to accumulate. He's got to start annoying the right people in order to build a coalition that can possibly give him a chance of at least preventing Labour from getting an overall majority. And maybe, 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 who knows, just nicking it at the last minute. Fascinating politics. We haven't even mentioned the Lib Dems who have abandoned their penny on <laughs> income tax mega policy. I remember Paddy Ashdown briefing me about that back in the mid-90s on, on a battle bus somewhere in the West Country. I always think the leader of the Lib Dems is called Tim, but apparently on this rare occasion, he's called Ed. <laughs> what do we know about Ed Davey? Do women have a penis, Liam? Quite clearly, says Sir Ed Davey. Not voting for him. That's it. Yeah, we should just say before we move on, Sharon Davis setting up a grassroots, leading a grassroots campaign. They're going to ask 
every MP in the UK, can a woman have a penis? And then they're going to publish the results. So I think that's going to be a really valuable people fighting back against some of the nonsense that's taken root in our establishment class. Hi, Tony Diver here, The Telegraph's US editor in Washington, D.C. I've launched a new free-to-read newsletter from the U.S. editor, featuring insight from our correspondents around the world and thought-provoking opinion from leading journalists in both Britain and the USA. The newsletter is packed with the best of the Telegraph's global coverage. Visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash from the U.S. editor to sign up. Now, in a week when HS2 looks as if it's about to be scaled back, we thought we'd talk to a rail expert. Jonathan Tyler spent a lifetime working on the UK's railways, having joined British Rail as a traffic apprentice back in 1962. He's since worked in the control office as an inquiry clerk, assistant yard manager, then as a sponsored British Rail University lecturer, and ultimately as one of the UK's leading timetabling experts. For the last 20 years, Jonathan's run a York-based consultancy called Passenger Transport Networks, a chartered member of the Institute of Logistics and Transport and a visiting research fellow at the Institute for Transport Studies at Leeds University. He is one of the world's most respected rail He is one of the world's most respected rail analysts, a consumer train advocate, an industry insider who's been able to stand back and look at the bigger picture. So co-pilot, what does Jonathan Tyler Think of HS2. Jonathan, I think it's fair to say you're a bit of a legend in the rail industry. You joined British Rail back in 1962 as a traffic apprentice. You are now, I think it's fair to say, one of the world's leading timetabling experts and a long-term advocate of trains. And yet in 2013, as long ago as that, you wrote that HS2 is a politician's and an engineer's vanity project. How can somebody who is such an advocate of trains in this country, who spent their lifetime in our train industry, be so opposed to this huge train project? The more I looked at it, the more I got involved, the more I felt it was the wrong project in the wrong place at the wrong time. 2005, the then Labour government commissioned Sir Rod Eddington, a respected engineer, to look at the whole strategic scene for transport planning in Britain, all modes across the whole country. And he produced what many at the time regarded as an excellent report. The essence of it was that the strategic thinking was not at all good, that there was an obsession with particular projects rather than looking at the scene as a whole. He stressed that actually Britain overall had a quite a good transport network. We built mo- much of the motorway network. In particular, the railways were already operating at 200 kilometres an hour on many of the main lines. And given the British geography, the relative proximity of, very, of the key cities, he couldn't really see any particular benefit from new high-speed lines. Instead, he had two major proposals. One was that money on infrastructure should be spent on uh, improving local networks, particularly the railway networks around the big cities outside London. 
and two, that it was very important to introduce pricing systems which reflected the true costs of uh, infrastructure and operation. In particular, identify and charge for the external costs caused by flying and some form of road pricing in order to make sure that road users paid the proper cost of their use of the roads. So why was that Eddington report rejected so roundly back in 2006? Rod Eddington, at the time, had just stopped running BA. He was a very respected transport guy, and yet his findings were rejected out of hand. Why was that? There were two reasons. One was the huge momentum of the existing planning system with the roads and railways and air being planned separately with their own strategies, their own organisations. There was almost no cross-modal study. And just looking ahead, because it's relevant, nothing has happened um, in, on that front ever since to the point where the Transport Select Committee of the Commons is currently just launching a study of that very topic of how poor strategic planning is in Britain. So we've wasted, what, 17 years. But the other reason was that there were voices beginning to be heard, and they were heard loud and clear when Andrew Adonis got excited as the, uh, as the Labour uh, Transport Minister in favour of, of uh, new high-speed lines. They were glamorous. Everybody else was believed to be building them, and, and there was a strong sense that we should have one or more. And as we'll no doubt discuss, that was misguided. Why is it misguided? Is it because we're a relatively small country? Distances are relatively small. And also, we're a very geographically lopsided country, aren't we? The most uh, over-focused on our capital advanced country in the world, London and the southeast. And isn't it true, Jonathan, that the international evidence shows that high-speed rail tends to draw more business to the capital city rather than out to the regions. Yes, I think there's a great deal of truth in that, and it wasn't recognised. There were arguments about um, capacity being reached, and frankly, I don't think they were adequately studied, more limited alternative ways of relieving such pressure as there was, because there was enthusiasm for high speed per se, uh, supporters of railways, got very excited about the possibility of this amazing new railway. Um, and of course, the civil engineering um, uh, consultants and contractors saw a big opportunity. And I think in retrospect, some of the consultants' reports could well be challenged as being over-optimistic. Is the fact that it's public sector money, do you think that's encouraged so much lobbying and efforts to extract money from the state? Yes, I mean, it's a strange situation because once we had a Conservative government, of course, there was a great belief in the private sector. But HS2 Limited was already established as a public sector operation with public, mostly public money. But it was made worse, in my judgment, by the fact that the decision was taken to set up HS2 Limited as an independent company charged with building the railway. There was no direct link with Network Rail planning the rest of the system. And it became increasingly obvious that HS2 Limited had its own ideas to the point, I think, of arrogance. 
they decided to go for a maximum of 400 kilometers an hour, which was the fastest in, would have been the fastest in Europe. But that meant in turn, as straight a route as possible, which then meant a, a great deal of expensive tunneling. They uh, decided that they were not going to have very many stations on the network. And one of the reasons why I became increasingly skeptical when I was looking at the plans was that they were going to go through Carlisle and not stop, despite the fact that it's a sizable and, and important interchange. And so it went on. And they've been very reluctant to address common interests. And unfortunately, Network Rail has just been unable to constrain them. The cost-benefit analyses that I've seen, the case for HS2 was very, very marginal, given how expensive it is, even when you had Birmingham to Manchester and Birmingham to Leeds. That Birmingham to Leeds branch, of course, was scrapped back in 2021. But if it is just London to Birmingham you know, upwards of 100 billion quid on another train line to London to Birmingham, when we already have two train lines from London to Birmingham, going from Euston and going from Marylebone. What is the case for HS2 if it's only London to Birmingham? Is there any case at all for it? I think the conclusion now, however embarrassing to everybody involved, is there's no case left. The Leeds branch was actually the one that, if you believe the assessments would have delivered the, the best um, overall cost-benefit. So that's gone. Yeah, Manchester will knock more out. The benefit for just London-Birmingham is much reduced if the London terminus is going to be at Old Oak Common. In Acton, which of course is quite a long way on the tube from Euston. So it, so it takes longer from Birmingham to Euston if you use HS2 then come in on the tube via Old Oak Common. There were good reasons for choosing Euston in theory, but right at the beginning, it was obvious that it was going to be a huge project and the cost went up. So that's why now there's talk of, of terminating at Old Oak Common, which you're right, absolutely right, means that the, the, the route is not going to deliver significant benefits. The case for diverting trains to the HS2 to so relieve capacity on the classic line has never been fully established in in my judgment, and I'm not alone in that. Mm. Part of the arrogance of HS2 is that they've been extremely secretive about timetable planning. It's not been coordinated with Network Rail. At some stage, it was decided that the Older Common would have an interchange with the Great Western Main Line so that passengers from Reading and Points West could come up to Old Oak Common in order to switch to HS2 and be uh, taken at high speed to Birmingham and Points North. I don't think that was ever clearly established and it as a benefit, and it certainly isn't a benefit just for Birmingham. So Old Oak Common as an interchange station is essentially uh, with the main line, is redundant. And yet there is a, pl a plan to begin building the Great Western part of that station. It's all been complicated because the, once again, the developers' interests have got involved and see a huge opportunity with the lands around Old Oak Common. So people have bought up land on a speculative basis, thinking the cost of it will go up when all this new infrastructure goes in. These are the people driving this 
white elephant forward because people have bought up land, haven't they? Right up this proposed route, right up the line. And that's now complicating the decisions because those are private marginal interests. Just tell us a bit more about these vested interests, Jonathan. Come on, you've been in this business a long time. The whole country is trying to peer into the rail industry to understand what's going on. What is it about the speculation on land? What is it about the mass massive engineering lobby that is driving this project forward? A project which I say again, you dismissed 10 years ago as a politician's and engineer's vanity project. I mean, the civil engineers want work, don't they? They want profitable projects. The land developers want to do likewise, and they spotted opportunities. Some of the early enthusiasts for HS2 were very much on their side, as it were, however misguided. I find one of the saddest things about this is that the northern Labour-dominated local authorities are bought into this, this whole concept, despite the fact that it was going to delivering a service, even under the original optimistic plan, was a very long way away in time. It seemed to me rather silly to be so obsessed with getting a, a high-speed line eventually, when if there's to be levelling up, and that's an important objective, it's what you need to do now in the, sh- in the short term, and particularly by improving um, local services. HS2 never, ever planned how local services around Manchester, for example, were going to connect with HS2. They just weren't, didn't seem to be interested. I've never seen a detailed plan of how, if you had a fast train from London to Manchester, how would you get to Oldham or Rochdale or Blackburn or Bolton? So you said it was a politicians and engineers vanity project, Jonathan Tyler, 10 years ago. We've now spent, what, 20, 30 billion pounds and rising. How would you describe HS2 now in a nutshell? The the bits that have been chopped off being reinstated in in anything like a a reasonable timescale. The rump that's left is almost useless. I've explained the problem at at Old Oak Common and the Great Western Main Line. It's still going to take a lot of money to finish it. It's not going to do anything significant for carbon savings. It's dishonest to claim that it's a carbon-effective project, although HS2 are sticking to this public relations line. It's totally misleading. If you want to run at that sort of speed, it's very carbon-intensive. You start with an awful lot of carbon inputs to the construction, however much they've tried to make it more efficient, and it would take an eternity to recover that uh, embedded carbon, I'm afraid it's a pointless scar on the landscape. I can't see how it can possibly be rescued. Jonathan Tyler, you have spent a lifetime working on the railways, as I said. Fascinating insights there. Thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Well, there you have it, Alison. Jonathan Tyler, a proper train industry insider. He's really not amused. I was listening to it in bed last night the interview, Liam, thought it was extraordinary. And I was just at the end of it, I just was in a stunned silence. How useless is our country? Is there anything the state is running which isn't in deep doo-doo? This is 
dreadful. And Jonathan, obviously very, very, as you say, deeply knowledgeable, cares passionately about the railways, talking about the arrogance of the people, the misguided, misplayed confidence. His final words, it's a pointless scar on the landscape. I can't see how it can possibly be rescued. How many schools and hospitals could we have built with that money, Liam? How many little lines linking up Oldham and Hull and Leeds and all those places across the north and the northeast, places like Lincoln, where we talked to Carl McCartney about, which has got dreadful transport for local people. All that money could have linked up the east and west of the country, instead of which, as you said, we've got another line from Birmingham, not even to Euston, somewhere in Acton. I mean, honestly, tell me I'm wrong, but I just feel, I think there should be arrests. I think there should be criminal prosecutions. This is negligence. You're right. We have wasted a huge amount of cash here. The case for HS2 was always very, very marginal. It just about washed its face in terms of return on massive public investment. If it had kept to cost, which it hasn't, of course, Current estimates are three times the original estimates allowing for price increases. And if you'd had the Birmingham to Manchester and particularly the Birmingham to Leeds branch, these are the ones that added genuine economic value. But the whole thing was pants, if you like, to use a technical term. We (laughs) should be doing an east-west rail route from Liverpool through Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, York, Middlesbrough, Hull. Let's link together... Newcastle, of course, let's link together our great northern cities into an alternative growth centre to London. They could rival London. These cities have tremendously talented workforces. They have a huge tradition of manufacturing, culture, the arts, service industries. They have massive name recognition around the world for cities of their size. There's cheap housing there. Young people would move there. Great lifestyle, the outdoors, hill walking, fabulous place to live and yet the transport links are terrible we desperately need better transport links into and between our northern cities try commuting from preston to hull try commuting you know from burnley to a major local city it's really really tough there's very little electrification of trains in the north of england the majority of trains believe it or not are still diesel trains which means they're they're slow they can't accelerate you can only have a few carriages because they haven't got the pulling power of electricity and so you get these massively overcrowded trains in the north of england people literally can't get on the trains to get to work and there's like one or two trains an hour from some pretty major places into the big cities there's so many quick fixes that the government could have done to help rail in the north of england and in the midlands too and yet they've gone for this vanity project driven and i think we've heard unequivocally there from jonathan tyler an incredibly knowledgeable and respected person within the rail industry i can't stress enough how much of a legend he is him talking openly about the massive vested interest that engineering conglomerates and the land speculators Um, who are driving this forward, plus ministerial inertia. No minister wants to say, this is ridiculous, we've got to stop. Well, now maybe, maybe Rishi Sunak is saying that, and it's a bit like a a grotesque game of pass the parcel, and the music stops, and he ends up holding the newspaper packed full of odeur, shall we say, given that this is a family show. And yet someone had to say stop, 
because this thing makes no sense whatsoever. And if you don't go to Manchester, it makes even less sense. So the, the horrible question now is, do you write off the 25 billion or so that we've already spent because you don't want to spend another 75 odd billion on a piece of infrastructure that will basically be redundant before it even opens? And now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. And we learn so much from you, don't we, Alison? The citizens of Planet Normal. We certainly do learn a lot. We've been having a huge number of emails about Net Zero and Rishi Sunak's tweaks of the timetable. And I think, Liam, this is a very serious and important email from somebody Chris, but Chris is for reasons that will become apparent, not his real name. Dear Alison and Liam, I found the reaction to Rishi's adjustments to the UK's net zero timetable this week quite remarkable. I'm an electronic engineer who specialises in semiconductors, specifically the sort needed in the heart of electric and hybrid vehicles. My whole career has been built in this area, having worked on over 200 electric vehicle platforms with about half of all the world's electric vehicles using semiconductors that I developed and brought to the market with my colleagues around the world. I know this area well. You therefore might be thinking that I would have been heartbroken by the push out of the ban on new internal combustion engine cars from 2030 to 2035. And indeed, that I would be a keen advocate of converting the rocket of right thinking to electric power forthwith. Far from it, says Chris. I was not surprised by the push out of the deadline this week. And indeed, many of us who are deep in the electric vehicle and green industries have known since the day it was announced that the 2030 target was totally delusional. Even with some technologies being ready, the supply chains will not meet a 2030 deadline. Even 2035 is going to be a push. Currently, about one-fifth of all new cars in the UK are electric or hybrid. Therefore, to get to 100% by 2030, you'd have to increase the production capacity of key components like semiconductors and batteries by a factor of five from today. Given it takes upwards of four years to build a new semiconductor factory and the government still have not managed to produce a coherent semiconductor strategy, the 2030 deadline was doomed from day one. Pursuing net zero requires perhaps the biggest technological transformation mankind has ever seen. For the scale to tip in favor of any new technology, the incoming technology must do everything that the old one could do, but better. And critically, the new technology must be cheaper overall than the incumbent. You do not make new technologies successful by banning the legacy ones. If only our civil servants, politicians and so-called green advocates understood this fundamental point about innovation and engineering. The only thing shocking this week was the hysterical reaction by so many EV experts and green commentators to the push out of the ban by five years. If they knew anything about the technologies they advocate, they would have known this slight delay was inevitable. Incidentally, there is no way Labour will be able to reinstate and meet the 2030 deadline if they get into power next year. 
Keep up the good work, you two. And as an expert in electric vehicles, I advise that for now, you should keep the rocket's old hydrocarbon-based propulsion system we are going to do. So kind (laughs) regards, Chris. P.S. As a long-standing Planet Normal listener, I would be delighted if you read this email out. However, I would be grateful if you change my name as I am a senior consultant to the UK government in the area of semiconductors and electric vehicles. Well, I think that's game, set and match, Halligan. What do you say? Talk about burying the lead. Crikey. <laughs> it's like one of your old news stories, Alison, the most important line is the one at the end. <laughs> Fantastic email there from Chris, not his real name. Very, very interesting. Here's a quick one from Simon. I just got back from a 12-day trip around Iceland, a spectacular and lovely place with some stupendous civil engineering to build a road around the whole island. There's a road tunnel near the northern town of Akuri, apologies to our Icelandic listeners, that's 4.6 miles long. It took five years to build and was opened in 2018, all for less than 150 million US dollars. Estimates, meanwhile, for the two-mile Stonehenge tunnel are now near two Billion. That's 2,000 million pounds. No wonder Sunak's having to make economies. But why has it become acceptable for our engineering projects to become so ludicrously expensive? Love the podcast and your telegraph columns. Long may your work continue. And this is from David in Devon. I listen to each and every podcast you have released, and I'm very grateful to you and him. That's you, Allegan. Surely himself. Him indoors. Him indoors. <laughs> Apologies to the fantastic Anthony Lane, aka <laughs> Mr. Alison Pearson. Mr. Indo- Mr. Indoors. He's cooking my dinner even as we speak. I'm very grateful to you and Liam for your service to the people of this country. I am an optometrist, says David, practicing in the high street, and I found it very difficult over the years since they allowed us to go back to work after our three months of house arrest. The madness seems interminable, like a slow-motion car crash. I can't believe that it's still happening. Although you have both been brave and indefatigable in challenging all the hysteria, it seems like there is a third rail that even you are unwilling to touch, the great unmentionable, the humming, fizzing, crackling heresy that only the brave or the clinically insane are willing to touch. You know what I am on about because it's obvious that you are actively avoiding confronting the subject, of course, vaccine harms, although you occasionally make tangential references to the great unmentionable UK HSA, that's the Health Service Authority, MHRA, that's the medical regulator. And it seems anyone else ostensibly protecting patients are, it seems, asleep at the wheel or willfully blind. So it's been left to members of the public to search for, find, teaser, analyse and collate official government data, says David, to provide some useful information for that may benefit the people of this country. It breaks my heart that I'm still seeing patients every week who are suffering terribly from vaccine side effects. Just want to say a couple of things, David. We have had people looking into this the whole time. We have just seen, obviously, very strong evidence on behalf of the vaccine injured to the official COVID inquiry. We've got lined up people who are very soon going to come on and talk about this, including Gareth, who is the widower of Lisa Shaw, the BBC radio presenter who tragically died from clots caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine as stated on her death certificate. So I just want listeners to know that we are on this and it's a very serious issue and we will be tackling it very, very soon. 
We should also add, shouldn't we, that the Telegraph has not shied away from this. Indeed, our fabulous science editor, Sarah Napton, has written some path-breaking pieces on vaccine harms and has been doing so in the main paper for a number of months. Just to say, Liam, we've had people, we've had science, scientific friends and volunteers looking into this. David, it takes a long time for the data to be clear. It's not just to do with shying away from it. It's to do, we've all got anecdotes. I've got three people in, in, in near the town where I live who have absolutely suffered vaccine side effects. But we, as journalists, we have to wait for the data, for the smoke to clear a bit, really, before we say anything. So I hope it's not its not just cowardice. It's just waiting for the right moment. And talking about waiting for the right moment, he's back. It's Bob uh, the Bard, the mm. Planet Normal resident poet, former mug winner, he says. Don't give me another mug. I've got a spare room full of them. Dear <laughs> Planet Normal writes Bob, as a fellow cat lover <laughs> myself, I'm afraid I felt compelled to write yet another dodgy poem to celebrate the new arrival at Pearson Towers. We are, of course, talking about Alison's Turkish stray cat, who, as we speak, is limboing through passport (laughs) control at Heathrow on some kind of dodgy counterfeited passport, which cost Alison huge amounts of cash. HS2 style. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, so this is why the Birmingham to Manchester leg's being scrapped <laughs> because of the impact yeah. on the national debt of you getting this blasted cat over from Turkey. My God. <laughs> Thanks again for Planet Normal. You truly are, drum roll, the cat's whiskers of podcasting. I see what you did there, Bob. I see what you did there. So this is called Turkish Delight. Congratulations, Diddy, the name of the cat. You've landed on your feet. The lady with the sea bass has saved you from the streets. <laughs> no more shall you go hungry. There's no more need to roam. You have a family that adores you and a wonderful new home. So when Alison is with you and she gently strokes your fur, I hope that you will thank her with a loud and lovely purr. So what is the latest on this cat, Alison? Is Diddy in the UK? And if so... How much? How much? I can neither confirm nor deny because my other half might happen upon this podcast. And if I tell him what his cost is going to be, there'll be no turkey for Christmas, I can tell you. Yeah, she's with her foster carer in Turkey and she is preparing for her long voyage from Turkey by road, which will be starting on the 12th of December. And if we have a few Christmas drinks, I might tell you to the nearest thousand how much it's going to cost. Oh, my God. And Sue says, Earth to planet normal. Alison was wondering what role she might play in a Halligan government. She'd make a brilliant chief whip. You'd both have my vote, says Sue. See that Halligan government? You see that? Just the Mm. natural assumption with my superb leadership skills and natural charisma that it would be a Halligan government rather than a Pearson government. (laughs) Did that bother you? Did that bother you? Were you irked there? Did you think, hang on? I don't know. Could we ever be politicians? I keep being asked. I am thinking of running at the 2024 general election. What? Yes, I am. <laughs> and, I, and I've got a backer. Uh, Is Diddy think- going to be your mascot? That's a good idea, isn't it, Diddy Cat? <laughs> but I don't know. I think I'm I think naturally too arsy to be a politician. I just can't. I can't bear it when you see people who you know don't support the line going along with it. I don't know. But we'll see. I'm it's gonna be it's gonna be a fight back against lockdown if I stand. So I'll keep everyone posted. 
This is from Jane finally. I've listened to every episode from the start of Planet Normal. I'm so grateful to the rockets of right thinking, always reassured that I'm not alone in thinking that our lives are turned upside down and there are some very powerful people who are not always honest or sincere. Thank you, says Jane. Well, thanks to you, Jane, for writing into us. And finally, Morris, Alison and Liam, you're two of a kind, like Beauty and the Beast, so <laughs> funny and truthful. Once a week is not enough. But the question is, Morris, who's the beast? Because <laughs> it ain't me. <laughs> it must be the cat. <laughs> must be the cat. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn. Well, it has to be Chris, not his real name. It has to be Chris, not his real name. And when his government mates come round to his house for a soiree of governing, he can hide his Planet Normal mug in the kitchen and he can stare at the cupboard door thinking, if only you guys knew about my secret life as a Planet Normal listener. If you enjoy Planet Normal, we jolly well hope you do, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does really help others to find us. So if you haven't left a review, please do, because it really cheers us up when the world's so mad. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Casso and Louisa Wells, Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 